Dog Works Radio is sponsored by Alaska Dog Works. Check out their website at alaskadogworks.com. Start your day tomorrow with the Daily Dog with Michelle Forto, the morning podcast on Dog Works Radio. Apple Podcast reviewer Patty Christensen calls it funny, smart, and filled with all the info I want to know about dogs. I love this show. Wake up with the Daily Dog, available on Dog Works Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your shows. Radio Free Palmer 89.5 KVRF presents Mushing Radio, hosted by Robert Forto. Mushing Radio is about dog-powered sports, living in the Great White North, and mushing. Visit our website at mushingradio.com. Here is your host, Robert Forto. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Robert Forto and you're listening to Mushing Radio here on KVRF 89.7 in the Matsu Valley. RadioFreePalmer.org is our live streaming site and you can hear all of our episodes over on DogWorksRadio.com. You can also find us on social media just by searching DogWorks Radio and joining me today is... My co-host, his name is Alex Stein, and he's calling in from California. And today, we're going to tell you guys the rest of the story of the 1925 Serum Run. If you have not had a chance to listen to our 10-part series, pause right here, go back to our feed, and you will find all episodes listed in order from beginning to end, and it was hosted by our friend Alex. But first, we're going to talk to Alex about some of the -the behind-the-scenes and nuts-and-bolts parts that it took to make our first season here on Mushing Radio, talking about the 1925 Sierra Run. All right, Alex, I know you just finished up with our first full season here on Mushing Radio, and we told the story of the 1925 Sierra Run. And you know me, I love to hear some of that nuts and bolts, behind-the-scenes stuff of what it took to make something like this. I know this was not only a passionate project for yours and a story that you wanted to tell for a long time. You and I have talked about this for the last couple of years, and we finally put pen to the paper, so to speak, and got it recorded and out on the air. So I want to hear from you. What did it take to make a story like this? Where did you get your sources from? Just tell us about sort of the making of the serum run. Yeah, so there were there were a whole bunch of sources that I used, um, uh, books and articles and uh, newspaper accounts and things like that. The most useful one I would say is there's a book that came out a few years back called The Cruelest Miles, um, by Gay Salisbury and Laney Salisbury, uh, which really has a lot of detail about the serum run. And they did a fantastic job of pulling in a lot of information from various different sources. Uh, Also, there's a lot of information available um, on some of the Alaska newspapers sites, um, on the Iditarod site itself. Uh, Our friend Helen Hegener has some really amazing material that she's put up and that's in some of her books. Um, so it was, it was a lot of pulling from a bunch of different sources to, to get this. And it was pretty much organized along the lines of how the, how the race, uh, how the race, how the, um, serum run progressed. So 
it started out with setting up the um, the outbreak and the epidemic and what was going on in Nome, and then going through the process of putting the the relay together, which originally was just going to be um, two mushers each going halfway, and Leonard Seppola was going to go halfway uh, from Nome to Nalato and then turn around and come back to Nome. And then it was expanded, and there were a lot of different things that, as it was going on, were, were pulling it in one direction or another. There's a lot of stuff about the press coverage, um, as you mentioned, and uh, and there's there's even some archival interviews with some of the mushers that was done um, many, many decades later, like in the 50s and 60s. And some of that stuff is available online as well. So let's dive a little bit deeper, Alex. Uh, for our longtime listeners, they should know that you are a professional storyteller. This is what you do to make a living. And, you know, you do live in L.A. and, and you're sort of in that scene can we talk a little bit about sort of about the making of the story itself? And can you let our listeners know what makes a good story like this? How does it flow well? How did you compose it? Even how did you record it to equal what the end product was? How long did it take you? You know, that sort of stuff. Um, each episode probably took about 10 to 12 hours to put together all, all in. Um, uh, you know, for me, what what makes a good story is something that really connects emotionally. And we, we have a little bit of a head start in this because the people listening to this are people who care about mushing, who care about um, who care about dogs. We can we can take a little bit of a, a you know, we don't have to explain as much about dogs as we we might if we were dealing with people who didn't have any connection to dog sledding. Um but for me, the what really makes a good story is something that connects emotionally with you. So um, what I found is in a lot of cases, that means, uh, you know, none of the people listening were around in 1925, and they certainly weren't the people who were on the back of these dog sleds. But uh, if you can get as much detail as possible, then I think that helps put people right in the middle of the story. The most effective stories, and, and you can look at this in your, your favorite novels or your favorite movies as well, is those stories where you really feel like you're part of it. And people have done uh, brain studies with how, and done MRIs um, on people who are listening to stories or who are telling stories. And there's, there's a strange thing that happens where the, um, the response of your brain as you're listening to a really compelling story is almost exactly the same as if you were living through that story. So when we talk about really putting yourself in the middle of the story, that's essentially what, what we mean. And that's always what I am, what I am trying to do. Uh, in this case, there was also some stuff that helped. There were, uh, I got some uh, sound effects that, I used, um, hopefully not overused, but, you know, uh, it's one thing to talk about the wind or, or to talk about the wind in detail, but if you're talking about the wind and you're talking about how cold it is, and then you hear the sound of the wind blowing, uh, that just will give you a little bit of an extra chill. So, um, 
tried to add a lot of that um, and really just follow the story where it went. Um, I, I recognize that I have a tendency to romanticize this stuff, so I was on my best behavior and trying not to do that. You know, that, that sort of leads into my last question when you talked about the sound effects and all that. Uh, as most folks know, we are, of course, not uh, professional prod- podcasters, so to speak. We do not, uh, you know, we don't, we aren't employed by NPR or anything like that. And uh, we kind of went into this with a little bit of amateurism, I guess, uh, meaning that we weren't going to have a highly produced show with, you know, drop dead audio and that sort of thing. We just sort of went with it as it was so how did you think about it doing as as a podcast you know a podcast is a relatively new medium even though there's a quarter of a million or so podcasts out there about every topic imaginable uh this is our first season of sort of a kind of a long form audio in terms of a series how did you take the podcast portion of that and how is that different from what you normally do my understanding is is typically you go to uh like open mic type uh events where you read stories aloud to audiences and that sort of thing compared to even how you would write a story for a book or a magazine or whatever can you compare and contrast uh what you do typically and then how you're doing it on a podcast uh yeah the it's very very similar um, the difference is that the stories that I tell live, which I tell stories at venues all around Los Angeles, um, those stories are things that have happened to me or my personal essays. This is much more, um, you know, much more fact-based. It's much more historical. So there is that's a little bit different. But in terms of how I wanted the story to come across and how I wanted to tell the story aside from the fact that it's not me behind the sled, I I wanted to do everything that I could to put the listener behind the sled. And that's really the same approach that I have in telling any kind of story. I want to make sure that people uh, know where they are, that they don't get lost, that there's kind of a natural flow to it, um, that it builds up in intensity. um, And, uh, you know, in honestly, when when I started doing this, I I wasn't exactly sure how long each of the episodes were going to be, and we had a discussion about how many episodes there were going to be, and um, and I don't think that I had a clear answer when we were going into it for that either. But it just it just really took on a very nice life of its own, and then you know, in recording it, I would I would write it out and I would. I would record it and I would, you know, go through and edit it and take out the number of times that I said, um, because that bothers me. And I thought as long as I'm editing it, I may as well take those out and really then added in some of the, a little bit of sound effects and some, some music. And, uh, yeah, so it, it's sort of, uh, it's very similar to what I do live on stage, except maybe a little bit more produced. Well, you know, people really enjoyed the series. I know we had several people that were the first ones to download it, and they were the first ones to comment over on social media, whether it be Facebook or Twitter or whatever. I think people really enjoyed our first season, and I'm looking forward 
to doing uh, season two with you in the near future. I know we're getting ready to do uh, some semblance of, of, of coverage for Iditarod. I had no idea that you were taking 10 or 12 hours per episode, so I have to applaud your uh, your work effort. Man, that is, uh, that's a, a labor of love for sure. So thanks a lot for sharing that uh, sort of backstory with us. I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, I want to mention also that uh, we we both, and we've talked about this off air a lot, we both absolutely adore our listeners and our fans, and we love hearing from you guys. And uh, we try to interact as much as we can on social media. But uh, I want to encourage, again, as we do every week, uh, people to get in touch with us if you have comments, if you have thoughts, if you have things that you would like to hear or or things that you would not like to hear, or if you want to point out that I got some name wrong or mispronounced uh, the name of an Alaskan town, which I'm sure I did more than once. So I know it may be a little early in the game since we just ended the first uh, season last week. Any thoughts on the upcoming season two sometime in 2018? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep the people in suspense. We have some ideas of what we're thinking about, but, uh, yeah, we'll let this lie for a little bit before we decide to, uh, to go into something else. And I know you and I've talked and, and maybe I will do, uh, season two, but I definitely will need some help in, uh, in all of that behind the scenes writing and all that, uh, part of it, because that's what you do as a master, Alex. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I have to say also that I am, I know I've said this before, but I'm very thankful to you for bringing me onto this, uh, podcast as, and program as, as co-host. Uh, and it's just been an amazing experience for me. And I'm so happy about all of the stuff that I've gotten to learn and all of the people that I've gotten to meet as a result of Mushing Radio. Excellent. Well, Alex, thank you very much for your storytelling and your expertise. And with that, guys, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the players in the story with Balto and Togo and Leonard Seppala and Gunnar Kassen and all that. Okay, so let's uh, let's jump right in then, I guess. Yes, as as we mentioned, we're going to tell the rest of the story of the 1925 Serum Run, and you have some info about some really famous dogs, and we're going to start out with Balto, is that right? Right, so Balto is, um, because Balto was Gunnar Kasson's lead dog when he finished the Serum Run, uh, there is, for a lot of people who don't know a lot about the Serum Run, there is the assumption that Balto was the most important dog, or in some cases, if you look at the uh, 1995 animated movie, that maybe Balto was the only lead dog who ran the entire serum run. And that's not true, and that's also been the the subject of some uh, hurt feelings and some controversy over the years. But because Balto was the dog who who finished and who brought the serum, the the first serum into Nome, he's the most famous dog. Uh, he's the dog who was in the pictures. He's the dog who was in that um, film clip that was actually reenacted uh, the next day or, or that afternoon. And there was always a feeling that perhaps Casson had deliberately avoided handing the serum off so that he could be the one who got all of the glory. And in fact, after the serum run was over, 
Kasson became a minor celebrity. He he was given um, he was given a a role in a movie. Uh, he brought Balto and some of the other dogs down to tour the United States, the lower 48. They did a bunch of local appearances. Um, and uh, there was a statue of Balto that was erected in Central Park in New York City uh, at the end of 1925. Gunnar Casson and Balto were in a movie, a 30-minute movie that I believe was called Balto and the Great Race of Mercy um, that was released later later in that year. And they they pretty much were touring all around the lower 48. But because nothing in this story is exactly as simple as maybe we would want it to be, there were a lot of promoters that Casson was dealing with who were a little bit on the sleazy side. And so his dog ended up being... Uh, not particularly well treated. Um, and at one point, Balto and many of the dogs were in, I believe, Los Angeles, and they were uh, they were underfed. And um, the uh, a businessman from Cleveland was given the uh, opportunity to purchase Balto and these other dogs. Uh, and he was given two weeks to raise the money to bring Balto and the other dogs to Cleveland, which he subsequently did. He had a fundraising uh, effort and raised two thousand dollars, brought them to brought them to Cleveland, where he exhibited them in a zoo. And um, Balto ultimately, when he died a few years later, is now um, in a uh, in a museum in Cleveland. Right. You know, it, it sounds pretty pretty suspect to me on how things sort of ended up. But you know, it's sort of the nature of the beast. Anytime uh, that celebrity takes over, all sorts of things uh, go out the window. And you living sort of there in in the city of angels and Hollywood and all of that, you probably know a lot about how that sort of thing works its way out. You can have such a minor role in, you know, in, in some type of event, whether it's historical or not. And the next thing you know, the tabloids take over and you are semi-famous. I'm sure you see that all the time. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Leonard Seppala, this was particularly grating to Leonard Seppala, who was not the sort of guy who went out of his way to seek fame or acclaim. And here Gunnar Kasson is with don't forget a dog that belonged to Cephala and that Cephala had trained and Casson originally was working with Cephala for his dogs. And suddenly Cephala is kind of cut out of the picture in the popular, you know, uh, way of looking at how the serum run went, went down and Togo, who was a completely amazing dog also was kind of cut out. And I think Cephala spent, a long time really trying to get Togo to be recognized as every bit as important as Balto, even though he didn't finish the race. Seppala also took a team of dogs after seeing how well Kassen had done in 1925. The following year, Seppala took a team of dogs, including Togo, 
on a tour that started in Seattle and Washington State and went all the way down to California. They, uh, they would appear in department stores and even did a uh, series of advertisements for Lucky Strike cigarettes. And then he took the team to New York City, drove them down the steps of City Hall uh, and through Central Park, where ironically there was the statue of Balto then. Um, and they made several appearances at Madison Square Garden, um, which at the time was managed by Tom Rickert, who had lived in Nome. And at one of these events, Togo was awarded a gold medal by Raoul Amundsen, who was a Norwegian explorer who was the first man to the South Pole. Interesting. You know what I find really, uh, really cool about this story, if, if you guys remember when you were listening to our episodes, I believe it was the second episode where Alex uh, uh, titled the, the, the show, The Press Picks Up the Story. And I think... And, and I think we talked about this on the show and we've talked about it several times here on the podcast is this was really one of the first major stories that sort of picked, you know, picked up with the telegraph and all of that really, really started that almost social media type revelation. And this is how these dogs became famous because otherwise nobody would know who Balto was and Togo and Seppala and Kassin and all of these people when it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, Alaska, if it wasn't for this tenacity of these newspaper reporters, I don't think this would become the event afterwards that it did. Right. And the other thing that that we saw in the entire serum run is that the press and several of the players in this story uh, were not above exaggerating things. They weren't above making things sound um, even more treacherous than they were and sometimes, uh, you know, inventing little little stories that would they knew would pique people's interest because they're. Uh, a lot of the players in this story, they wanted to keep people invested in it and they wanted to make sure that, you know, for example, if there were more resources that were needed, that there would be a public outcry if the resources weren't provided. So we we see a little bit of the kind of manipulation of media that, you know, we've we've come to kind of maybe grown immune to in these days. But that's one of the first one of the first big stories where that happened. And, and you know, as you say that, uh, it, it still happens today in mushing, doesn't it? To that little bit of a romanticism uh, in how all of our, us mushers have these stories from the trail and all of this, you know, larger than life stuff that happens to us. Uh, that's what is so drawn not only to the Iditarod and the Yukon Quest, but even a show like ours. People just love to hear the stories and and we try our best to to make sure everything that we say has actually happened but that still happens every day in the mushing world doesn't it 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 sure does and i have to confess that as as a storyteller and as someone who loves stories and loves telling stories and loves hearing stories i'm sometimes guilty of that over romanticizing of some of these events but uh one of the things that i'm reminded of both in the serum run and in our regular race coverage and Iditarod coverage is there's really no need to exaggerate 
most of this stuff. Because if you look at what mushers do on a daily basis, and especially mushers in in uh, long distance or mid distance events, it's pretty heroic already. We don't we don't have to exaggerate it. Right. So getting back to uh, the story of the dogs and, and the two gentlemen there, uh, for folks that don't know, Togo uh, went on to live out his days, and he is currently, I don't know what the proper word for it is, I guess it's just stuffed. Uh, his body is stuffed and is on display at the Iditarod headquarters here in in Wasilla, right down the road from us, and you know the, the place where all of the um, the business side of Iditarod takes place. He's right there uh, in the in the media room, so to speak. I'm sure you've seen that. Yeah, and it's an interesting story because after after the serum run, uh, Cephala eventually would move to Fairbanks, and then he would he split part of his time between um, Fairbanks and Maine, where he established a kennel and bred a lot of huskies and really many, many of the huskies that are um, in the lower 48 can be traced back to that kennel that he had up in Maine. Um, and the when Togo died, uh, which was in Maine, um, Sepala had, uh, had him stuffed, essentially. And uh, Togo's body was on display in a couple of different museums. And um, one of the museums where he was before he was brought before the stuffed body was brought to Alaska, they let everyone who came in touch the the stuffed body and touch his coat. Uh, and as a result, the um, the coat got a little bit discolored, as you can imagine, from, you know, thousands of people touching it over a period of many, many years. And it was eventually. Uh, there was a letter writing campaign, I believe, and um, uh, to bring Togo, Togo or the stuffed body of Togo back to Alaska. And that's why Togo has been at the Iditarod, uh, at the ITC headquarters for many, many years, many decades. Uh, interestingly enough, his um, skeleton uh, so when they stuffed him, they took the bones out and his skeleton is in a museum in New Haven, Connecticut, a museum associated with Yale University. Wow. I did not know that part of the story. That's pretty cool. I think even for for mushers and geneticists of, of sled dogs, that would be something cool to see, to see the the confirmation of a dog like that, because he truly was an exceptional sled dog. Uh, from way back in the day. So I imagine a, a people today even think about how can we get a dog to react or act or mush or, or drive or whatever you want to call it to a magnificent animal like uh, like the lions of Sepala. Right. And not to get too far into the science fiction element of this, but if you consider that there there's a lot of things that go into an extraordinary dog and an extraordinary lead dog, but I, I have to wonder in the back of my mind, well, if you could get a little of that DNA or if you could get like a little chip of, of Togo's, you know, one of Togo's bones, would you want to clone that dog and maybe maybe bring him back in uh, 2019? 
You know, we had an episode about that, didn't we, Alex, just uh, a couple of months ago about uh, that genetic modification and and the gene doping and all that. What a a feat that would be to take a little bit of of one of those dogs and introduce that into your lines. You know, they're already doing it. They're saving... you know, they're saving DNA strands and genes and all that stuff from their current super dogs, as they call them. Imagine if they did that from a dog that's been dead almost 100 years. Yeah. And, you know, one more thing I wanted to mention about Leonard Seppala is that in 1932, uh, when the Winter Olympics, the third Winter Olympics were being held in Lake Placid, sled dog racing was an exhibition sport, a demonstration sport. And there were 12 teams who competed, uh, all from the U.S. and from Canada. And I believe they they went about 22 miles in one direction and then, then uh, came back, um, I believe, the following day. And um, in that competition, Seppala came in second. And it's very interesting looking at the list of people who were finishers in that event um, in 1932, number 11 of 12 is Colonel Norman Vaughn, who I know we'll we'll talk about a little bit more um, next week. But uh, it strikes me that Norman Vaughn is one of these characters who just pops up, almost like like Woody Allen Zelig. Um, you know, when you when you least expect him, there's Norman Vaughn somewhere in history. Yeah, you know, that is such a cool story, and, and of course, that plays right into something we're going to talk about next week when uh, Norman Vaughn, I guess it was in the late 90s or so, uh, started the um, the Serum Run Expedition up here in Alaska. He was uh, one of the founders or chairman or whatever his official title of that became and ended up having a, a reenactment, so to speak, traveling the tra- same trail and carrying the serum and all that. And I'm anxious to tell that part of the story as well. And of course, uh, we've talked about uh, Colonel Vaughn several times about how he became an Iditarod musher and all that through history. So everything ties together a little bit, doesn't it, Alex? It it really does. And, you know, uh, and, and we'll get more into this next week, uh, I'm sure. But there, there is sometimes a, a a little bit of, I don't know, a controversy about whether or not the Iditarod celebrates the serum run or not. And, uh, you know, I've had, I've had arguments with people who know so much more about uh, mushing than I will ever know, uh, who come down very, very heavily on one side or the other. But whatever, whatever the facts of that are, it's very clear that the 1925 serum run was a very, very important event, not only for saving all of the people in Nome and preventing this really potentially catastrophic outbreak, but also in terms of making people much more aware of sled dogs and of Alaska and of, you know, traveling in the wilderness in Alaska. And so I think that's 
that's something that I always come back to. And I think that leads a little bit to that romanticism part of the story as well. You know, when you can tie <laughs> something back to, you know, some cool uh, romantic event like uh, like the Siren Run, you know, a life-saving event where, you know, they, they, they literally saved hundreds of lives and then somehow bring that back full circle to an event like the Iditarod. I think that really goes into the story playing. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's, uh, I'll be the first to admit that's a large part of what inspires me about, about the Iditarod and about mushing is that I feel that there is a deep connection to a lot of these events, not only the serum run, but also for me, when I look at people going, going out in the middle of the night, uh, behind a dog team, it reminds me that people have been, uh, have been traveling by dog sled for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. And you know what, Alex? I know you and I talked about this uh, offline this morning. You know, you and I have hosted this show four, five, six years together now. And we had mentioned at the top that you're coming up to um, to be part of the Iditarod festivities. And we're going to get you out here and get you on your first sled uh, sled run here at our kennel. So I guess you're going to have a little bit of that experience or that romanticism yourself to look back upon uh, when you're hosting your future shows. Yes, and I look forward to the many, many pictures of me having wiped out and, and be like next to the sled that's on its side just covered with snow. And there you have it, the rest of the story about our series, the 1925 Serum Run, here on Mushing Radio. Next week, we're going to talk about some of the events that happened after the Serum Run, including the Iditarod, the 1932 Winter Olympics Exposition. We're also going to talk about the the newer version of the Serum Run that was started by Norman Vaughn in the late 90s, early 2000s, and how they paid homage to uh, the events of 1925. So please stay tuned. We'll talk to you guys next time. Goodbye. Did you know that Alaska Dog Works trains service dogs for those in need throughout North America? Each and every service dog that is trained through the Lead Dog Service Dog Program and Michelle Forda winner team has an individual training plan. We train for autistic, mobility, psychiatric, and PTSD for our soldiers for service work. If you know of someone that may need a service dog, please take a moment and check out Alaska Dog Works on social media and at alaskadogworks.com. Hi guys, it's Alex. If you're a fan of sled dog sports in the Iditarod, Mushing Radio is the show for you. Each Wednesday, we drop a new episode on Dogworks Radio. So be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you like our podcast, there are a few things you can do. You can take a couple of minutes and go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You can also check out all of our DogWorks Radio sponsors and promotions in our show notes. Another thing you can do is go over to Facebook, like our Facebook page, and one last thing, please tell all of your friends by spreading the word about DogWorks Radio. Thank you so much for listening to us. We really appreciate you. DogWorks Radio is produced by Robert Forto. Logo art by Angry Squirrel Studios. DogWorks Radio is produced in conjunction with KVRF 89.7 in Palmer, Alaska.
For dog training advice, you can contact Alaska Dog Works at 907-841-1686 or visit their website at alaskadogworks.com. If you have a show idea or would like to be a guest, please contact us by sending an email to live at dogworksradio.com.